0: Well, Gleaves, you didn't tell me that I was going to get three hours tonight. But since you offered, you're not going anywhere, are you? Uh, I want to thank Gleaves for having me back. It's always a delight to come to Grand Rapids and to the Howenstein Center. It's a a wonderful center for the study of the presidency. And and Gleaves always uh, treats me very well. It's it's always a treat to be invited back. And I want to thank Elaine um, on my behalf for the good work that she's done with Ford Museum and Library. And for the first time, I want to thank you on behalf of my son. I have a son who unaccountably has decided he wants to become a historian. And he is uh, he's in graduate school, he studies at Yale, and he is beginning research on his dissertation. And as a matter of fact, yesterday and today, he has been doing research at the Ford Archive Library in Ann Arbor. So I thank you on behalf of myself, on behalf of my family. Uh, I, as I say, I'm delighted to be here. I have spoken here in the past, and I thought it was a great experience. Uh, On each of those occasions when I've spoken, though, I've uh, told you, or whoever was in the audience then, I've seen some familiar faces, about a work, uh, a project that I had finished. And so I felt a certain measure of expertise when I was speaking. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about a work in progress. And I'm going to be telling you uh, what I think I know about Franklin Roosevelt. I don't claim to really know it yet, because Franklin Roosevelt, to a greater degree than anybody else I've studied, uh, is a puzzle. And he was a puzzle to people in his day. He's been a puzzle to historians ever since. So I guess uh, what I'm going to describe tonight is what I will call my search for Franklin Roosevelt. And I'm going to try out some ideas on you and see if they fly. If they don't fly, maybe they won't make it into the book. If they do, then maybe I'll I'll go ahead with them. Uh, But I'm going to start off by telling, and I think I may start off the book this way. Uh, one of the hardest things about writing a book, and I, as Cleve said, I, I teach writing, or at least I try to encourage students to, to pay attention to the writing and, and, and figure out how to tell a story. Because what we in history do is we tell stories. And we historians tell stories that we try to base on facts. We stick to the facts as, uh, and we tell the stories based on the facts. But we still tell stories. And I think that's the reason that history is so attractive, that we learn about other people. I tell stories about other people. You read stories about other people. And the hardest part of any book, of any paper, um, is figuring out how to start the thing. How do you get this thing off on the right foot? How do you establish the right tone? And I've tried various approaches. I've written three prefaces and two prologues already. And I only get to use one. Actually, I don't get to use one of each, although I may fudge. I may write a preface and a prologue. And one version of the preface. Explains, and, and I have to do this in some form or another. I have to explain why I'm writing about Franklin Roosevelt. There have been probably a dozen pretty substantial biographies of Franklin Roosevelt until now. So the obvious question any potential reader would ask and deserves to have answered is, well, why is Bill Brands writing about Franklin Roosevelt? So I have to explain that in one form or another. I have to I sort of owe it to readers, and I'll tell you quite candidly. I need to tell reviewers why I'm going to do it, because they're going to ask that question even if readers don't. So one version of a preface says that, basically it starts off like this, Franklin Roosevelt was not my president. He was my parents' president. My father is almost 93 years old. He was 18 when Franklin Roosevelt was elected president. He didn't like. Franklin Roosevelt. My father was a Republican, raised in a Republican family, and he didn't like Franklin Roosevelt through the first eight years of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. If Franklin Roosevelt had left office after eight years, as everyone expected he would, then my father would have never liked Franklin Roosevelt at all. Uh, He thought that uh, the New Deal was spendthrift. He didn't like the intrusion of government into private life and the private sector. He didn't like the high expenses, the, 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 the high bills, that the tax bills that the New Deal ran up. But then along came World War II. And Franklin Roosevelt, who by his own description, shifted from being Dr. New Deal to Dr. Win the War, all of a sudden took on a different meaning to Americans, because once the war in Europe began. Once the war in the Pacific loomed larger, once the United States entered the conflict itself, then all of a sudden this president who was a democratic president, who was a liberal president, who was something of a divisive figure, was now commander in chief. And he commanded the respect of the American people. He won the respect of the American people in a way that simply as a domestic president, he hadn't. And so even my father grudgingly came around to respect Franklin Roosevelt. My father was in the army during the Second World War. And simply as a member of the armed forces, he had to respect or at least act as though he respected the commander in chief. But he also recognized that Roosevelt led the United States to victory in the greatest war in history. And that's got to command the respect of anybody. My mother, my mother is 12 years younger than my father. And my mother was just a school kid. I mean, she was in about first grade when Franklin Roosevelt was elected. But she was in college when he died. And she was able to testify to something that I had heard often, but I really didn't have any kind of personal sense for, that she remembers exactly where she was when she heard the news that Franklin Roosevelt had died. Now, without trying to date anybody in the audience, since I told you this is a work in progress, and so this is something of a workshop for me, let me ask you, how many of you can remember where you were when you got the news that Franklin Roosevelt died? Okay, that's, yeah, and that's my sense that people of a certain age can remember. Now, actually, interestingly enough, I asked my father this question. My father doesn't remember. Where he was when he got the news that Franklin Roosevelt had died, my father was I'm trying to remember where he was stationed at the time he was still in the army but he doesn't he doesn't remember exactly where he was and so he was he was older he was 32 years old at the time. My mother was 20 21 and so the thing and one of the differences is um, that my mother could not remember any other presidents. She was young enough that Franklin Roosevelt was the only president she remembered. My father was old enough that he remembered, I guess he probably remembered, he certainly remembered Coolidge and Hoover. And so he knew that you know there were other presidents, there would be other presidents. But for my mother, and for people who were in that certain age window, they couldn't remember a previous president. Anyway. Um, I was never particularly impressed with Franklin Roosevelt from what I knew sort of secondhand about Roosevelt. And this falls in the category, in in part, this falls in the category of I wasn't impressed with Franklin Roosevelt because the things that Roosevelt accomplished just got woven into the fabric of American life so that it seemed as though it had always been such. I remember, in fact, when I was in graduate school. Uh, I had this uh, fellow graduate student who had this stock phrase, and he would use it in all sorts of circumstances, and he would say, that's Shakespeare, pretty good writer, but he uses too many clichés. Well, of course, his point was that, no, they weren't clichés at the time that Shakespeare coined the phrases. Well, I felt that way about Roosevelt. And so, for example, I didn't realize what a big deal Social Security was, because In my lifetime, Social Security had always existed. I didn't realize what a big deal the New Deal was. This notion that if there are problems out there that afflict American society, it is the responsibility of government to do something about it. Well, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s. I was a child sort of of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. Well, Johnson's notion of the responsibility of government went far beyond Roosevelt's. And so, from what I knew of the New Deal, well it seemed like kind of it sort of paled by comparison to Johnson's Great Society. And so, you know, I began to think, well, okay, so what was a big deal about that? Even, even Roosevelt's leadership in guiding America to victory in the Second World War. Well, I knew in some sense it was kind of a big deal, but I was a kid. Of the age of America's superpower, dumb, if I can use that word, and so the notion that the United States should have won the Second World War, well, duh, you know the number one power is supposed to win. And furthermore, to you know, when I thought about or when I would read about that, the rise of Nazi power somehow challenged American security, or the the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor really struck at the question of would America be secure? Well. When I was a kid, I spent once a month uh, in school going through these air raid drills where these were explicit acknowledgments that there might be a nuclear war in the next half hour, and you had to deal with this. And so when you thought about the kind of destruction that a nuclear war could wreck on the United States, well, what the United States suffered during the Second World War didn't seem like that big a deal. So anyway, I kind of steered clear of Franklin Roosevelt. And, and part of it was, for the reasons that I just explained, but part of it was I couldn't really get a handle on Roosevelt. I had studied his cousin, his fifth cousin once removed, Theodore Roosevelt. And Theodore Roosevelt has this historical persona that just leaps off the page and grabs you by the throat and shakes you upside down. Theodore Roosevelt was somebody that you simply couldn't miss historically. You might not like him. You might love him. You might not like him. But he was hard to get confused about. He was hard to be puzzled about. You had other reactions. But puzzlement wasn't one of them. Franklin Roosevelt's historical personality was much more understated. And with Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt was not the kind of person, at least who was easy for me, to like, to warm up to. I spent a lot of time studying Benjamin Franklin. I wrote a book about Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin was somebody that I really came, I admired going in. And I admired even more coming out. And I just really liked the guy. I'm pretty darn certain that I would have liked him in life if I had known him. He's a great guy to go out and have a beer with, somebody to talk about life. He He was saying these things that just seemed really wise. And I remember when I was reading a collected edition of his letters. And I remember, I could still, it's etched in my mind, turning the page and reading the sentence where he said, and he really did say this, and I, he was in the letter, where he said, there is nothing certain in this life but death and taxes. Well, this is something that Franklin is known for saying. And, and here he actually said it. You know, there it was. And I thought this was terrific. And, uh, and so he was an easy person to warm up to. But but Franklin Roosevelt, I had a hard time with him. Partly, it was his background. Partly, he was this rich kid who had everything handed to him. Things came so easily to Franklin Roosevelt. Actually, I, I'll tell you the really flippant reason why I'm writing about Franklin Roosevelt. And it has to do with the fact that I had written about Benjamin Franklin, and I had written about Theodore Roosevelt, and when I give lectures like this, and I draw examples from history, I would often cite an example from Franklin's life, an example from Roosevelt's life, and often get them confused. And so I would say Franklin when I meant Roosevelt. And so I decided that I might as well really confuse audiences by throwing in somebody whose name for both of them. And then when I said Franklin but meant Roosevelt, you wouldn't know if I meant Roosevelt Franklin or Franklin Roosevelt. Anyway. so. But I I finally decided, no, that I needed to take on Franklin Roosevelt because as a historian, a practicing historian every now and then, Gleaves gets this all the time because he's specifically in the field of presidential studies. I get it less often, but quite regularly. Historians and political scientists take polls on who do you think the most important presidents, the greatest presidents, the most influential presidents, sometimes the adjectives change, are in American history. And there is a regular top three. Do you know who the top three always are? Lincoln, Washington, and Franklin Roosevelt. Yep, it's always those three. Sometimes they shift the order a little bit. So I knew that if I was going to understand American history, if I was going to try to relate the story of American history, I had to come to terms with Franklin Roosevelt. I also came to appreciate that the kind of things that were accomplished in Franklin Roosevelt's time as president, and I might have said were accomplished by Franklin Roosevelt, but I have to be a little bit careful here. It's a big country, a big government. You can't ascribe everything to the president. But the things that happened during Franklin Roosevelt's presidency were absolutely critical to understanding how America is, why America and how America is the way it is today. Do you know why those three are the top three in American history? It's not simply because they were the wisest. It's not because they had the best policies. Do you know why? It's because they led the country through crisis. If you want to make the top level of any historical category, you have to rise to a challenge. This is what really galled Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt realized that he would never be considered one of the great, truly great presidents. And on those lists, compiled by the historians and political scientists, he's in the near great category. Sometimes he rises as high as number five. But he's never going to be considered the really great, and he knew perfectly well why. He was enough of a student of history to know that if you're going to get to the top, you have to be president during a crisis. Now here's the irony of it: the great presidents presided over moments in American history that you wouldn't have wanted to live through. The Civil War was the worst disaster in American history. Six hundred thousand Americans murdered one another in the name of Union, in the name of the Union, or in the name of the Confederacy, and. You know, there are historians who like to say that this shows that uh, democracy could defend itself. It confirmed the values of democracy. I don't think it did anything of the sort. I think it demonstrated an utter failure of democracy. Democracy is all about resolving differences by voting, not by shooting, anyway. so But Lincoln is considered right at the top because he led the Union through this crisis. Franklin Roosevelt. He led the Union through the country through two crises, the two greatest crises of the 20th century, of modern times, the Great Depression and World War II. Now, I hesitate to tell this audience, con- including those people who raised their hands earlier, that you wouldn't have wanted to live through that period. Well, I mean, you did. You didn't. We don't have a choice of when we live. But the fact is that the Great Depression was not a great time. And so, Theodore Roosevelt's problem was that the government, the country, did too well while he was president. It was a time of peace and prosperity. And those are death to your historical reputation. (laughs) Anyway, I have an alternative beginning for my book. And it goes like this. For three and a half years, in the early 1940s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was the most powerful man in the history of the world. He held the fate of humanity in his hands. What do you think? Is it a grabber? I've rendered you speechless. I guess it works. Now, needless to say, this is something that I can assert, and then I would have to go on and justify it and explain it. But I think it's absolutely true. And it it comes down to this. The United States in the early 1940s was far and away the most powerful country in the world. Uniquely among the belligerents in World War II, the United States came out of the war absolutely stronger than it went into the war. Everybody else lost the war, even those allies of the United States on the winning side. The United States won the war, everybody else lost. Some lost absolutely, Germany and Japan preeminently. But Britain lost its empire. France lost its empire, or would shortly. The Soviet Union lost tens scores of millions of people. And even though the Soviets, even though the Russians, claim with some justification that they were the ones who really defeated Hitler, and that's true enough, Something like 75 or 80% of German casualties were taken on the Eastern Front. Uh, The Russians lost more than the Germans did. And although they were able to present themselves to the world as a superpower, everybody knew, well, at least American leaders knew, and Soviet leaders knew even more, that they simply weren't in the same class with the United States. So Roosevelt commanded the American military and commanded the American government, as a wartime, as presidents during wartime, have a great deal of scope for controlling the government in a way that they don't during peacetime. And you can see this to some extent in the current war in Iraq with President Bush and the, the greater authority that the executive branch has claimed. So Roosevelt commanded the greatest economic power in the world, the greatest military power in the world, and he commanded it more forcefully than presidents almost ever command the American system. But beyond that, it was Roosevelt who held out, who controlled America's secret weapon. And that secret weapon was a vision of what the world could be after the war. I had an argument with a colleague um, about when I I posed, I tried this idea out. I teach at the University of Texas, and the University of Texas with Texas A&M every year has this—it's a a retreat of faculty members who are in the general field of national security studies. And we got together at this uh, resort. It's—it's nice. It's a a well-endowed retreat. So we got together at this nice resort outside of Austin, and uh, we were having this argument uh, beside the pool, actually. And and I proposed—I tried out my idea—that Roosevelt was the most powerful man in world history during the early 1940s. And this colleague of mine said, well, wait a minute. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Uh, How about Joseph Stalin? Joseph Stalin was effectively an absolute dictator over the Soviet Union during the same period. And although the power of the Soviet Union didn't add up to the power of the United States, if you contrast Stalin's near absolute control over the Soviet Union with Roosevelt's lesser control over the United States, Roosevelt was never a dictator. He had to share power with lots of other people, including Congress. So his argument was that if, if you factor in the fact that Stalin had a much greater degree of control over the Soviet Union and its military economy, political system, uh, and compare that with Roosevelt's lesser control over the larger system, Stalin comes out ahead. And I thought about that for a minute. And I said, yeah, but that leaves aside one very important aspect of American power, the most important aspect of American power. And you could call it, people call it various things. Sometimes it's called America's soft power, as opposed to America's hard power. I think you could call, I think you should call it America's moral power. The idea of what America stands for: individual liberty, democracy, the rule of law, private property. And it's this power that Roosevelt did more than anybody else to what shall I say, unleash on the world, spread around the world. It's a striking aspect of Joseph Stalin's power, that the power of the Soviet Union, the power of Soviet Communism, did not extend one foot, one foot, beyond where the Soviet Red Army occupied. Yes, the Soviets occupied Eastern Europe, and they controlled Eastern Europe. But beyond that, there was no attraction of the Soviet system. What made America powerful, in the end, was the idea of the United States and the idea of what America stood for. And actually, I hesitate to say even the idea of the United States. No. The ideas that America exemplified. The ideas of democracy. The ideas of the rule of law. This was the real victory of the United States in World War II. And if you want to say maybe these ideas were confirmed with the American victory in the Cold War. So, you could call that World War II extended down to the late 1980s. Anyway, so that's going to be part of the story. And I hope to grab the attention of readers. Because if I make a big sweeping claim like this, then presumably people will be interested enough to keep turning the pages. And one of the things I tell my students in the writing class is the first job of any historian or any writer is to get, students, get readers to keep turning the pages. And I also tell them that when I'm talking to my graduate students for the most part, you can rely on the fact that for your dissertation, you have a captive audience. Your dissertation committee has to read whatever you (laughs) write. But once you get past that, then you can't rely on a captive audience, and you shouldn't. I strongly encourage my students to write for broader audiences than they're fellow historical specialists. In fact, I encourage them to write for audiences like you. Uh, I don't think I don't see very many students in here, so I'm assuming that none of you was required to come tonight. You don't have to. You could stay home. You could watch TV. You could go to a soccer game. You could go fishing. You could do whatever you want on a nice night. But you chose to come because you were interested in history. And so I try to encourage my students to write for people exactly like you. People who don't have to keep turning the page. But They have to write, I have to write in a way that will get you to keep turning the pages. Okay. having said that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I have tentatively figured out about Franklin Roosevelt. I said this was my search for Franklin Roosevelt. I'm not sure I found him yet, but I'm getting there, I hope. And it has to do with the fact that Franklin Roosevelt was famously elusive. A lot of studies, a lot of biographies of Franklin Roosevelt include something like uh, the puzzle of Franklin Roosevelt, or Franklin Roosevelt the enigma, or Franklin Roosevelt the mystery behind the man, or you know that sort of thing. So what is it that we make of this guy? I'll tell you some of the characteristics of his leadership style, and then I'll I'll try to I'll try to explain to you what it all means. One of the things about Roosevelt, one of the great puzzles, was why this guy turned out to be as liberal as he was. Why is he the patron saint of modern American liberalism? You never would have guessed it from his background. He was born into privilege. His family was wealthy on both sides. Both his mother and the father, both his mother and father came from wealth. He wasn't he was the only child of his mother. His mother was the second wife of his father. His Father was a widower when they married. He had a half brother who was 25 years older than he was. So he grew up effectively as an only child. And he was utterly doted on by his mother. They had sufficient wealth that there was nothing that Franklin Roosevelt ever needed, nothing that he reasonably wanted that he didn't have. He had a pony, he had a sailboat, he took vacations every year in Europe. He went to Harvard as a matter of course and really didn't have to work very hard. That was back in the days when social standing was more important than academic accomplishment at Harvard. He had everything handed to him. And nonetheless, he became, well, uh, what many people during his presidency described as he, he became a traitor to his class. He took up the cause of The common people in America, when there weren't very many people of Franklin's Franklin Roosevelt's uncommon background, who did that. As a result, a whole lot of people that he had grown up with refused to speak to him anymore. Because it's what are you doing? You are undermining the very values that established your family's fortune that allowed you to live the life that you lived. Now, I don't have a full explanation as to why that was so. I can point out that in the Roosevelt family and in the Delano family, he was named for his, Delano was his mother's last name uh, and actually this raises an interesting point about the influence of parents on children. This is gonna be a big part of my story. I have to figure out I really have to figure out how this person became the person he ultimately became how? to follow up on what I established how did this kid born in 1882 by the way this is the 125th anniversary year of Franklin Roosevelt's birth how did this kid who very easily could have spent his life just as a rich playboy how did he become the most powerful man in the history of the world that sort of My search for Franklin Roosevelt. How do you get to this point? Did he know he was going to achieve that? Did he aim for that? Well, the answer to this is partly yes. It is the very rare person who becomes president of the United States who knew, who even had any reasonable expectation long in advance of becoming president that he could be president. The typical political trajectory is someone who has this interest in politics. Let's take Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, if he would have followed the advice of his family, of his friends, of the circle that he grew up in, never would have gone into politics. This was in the early 1880s. Because politics in Gilded Age America was considered a rather low calling. And people who went into politics were assumed to be corrupt, were assumed to be uneducated, who were assumed to be fundamentally dishonest. Not the sort of people you had into polite, polite households, not the kind of person you would let your daughter marry. But Theodore Roosevelt went into politics nonetheless. When he went into politics, he had no idea that he could ever become president. And for the very good reason that he only became president by accident. And it was as he later himself admitted, that uh, it was a stroke of luck, uh, the bad luck of William McKinley in getting assassinated when he was vice president that did it. Theodore Roosevelt never could have gotten elected on his own, not the first time. He could get re-elected, but not elected the first time. But he did become president. And the fact that he could become president only dawned on him maybe two or three years before he became president. That's usually the kind of late dawning, the late uh, recognition that you might be president. But Franklin Roosevelt was different, because there was a family member who had been president. I have to make exception for people like John Quincy Adams, whose father had been president of the United States. So John Quincy Adams recognized that you could do this sort of thing. Now, I'll share a personal experience with you. Um, and. I will confess that I think biographers especially, authors of all sorts, historians, but especially biographers, reveal, if you know how to read it, reveal in their interpretation of the individuals they study, something of their own experience. Simply because a biography is a study in human nature. And we all have our theories of human nature. We don't necessarily call them theories, but just our understanding of the way people work. And so what you understand, what you infer about an individual, reflects the kinds of things that you have gathered about the way humans work. And so when I think about Franklin Roosevelt and the fact that he had this cousin who, interestingly enough, became his uncle by marriage. There was a fifth cousin, once removed, and so he married Franklin Roosevelt married Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the niece of Theodore Roosevelt. So that Eleanor Roosevelt, upon marrying, became Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt, leading Theodore Roosevelt to congratulate the groom at the wedding. And he said, Franklin, good for you. There's nothing like keeping the name in the family. Anyway, Franklin Roosevelt now had this model for what he could become. And when I said I was going to share a personal experience, as I mentioned at the beginning, my son has decided to become a historian. Now, partly it's because he's interested in history. But I know some of it reflects the fact that he's watched me do it for a while, for most of his life. And I know he has concluded, because he's been candid enough to share it with me, uh, he has concluded how hard can it be if my old man's been doing it all these years? Such is the lack of respect of you. But anyway, Franklin Roosevelt, at the age of 22, shortly after he got out of college, announced to some of his fellow workers, he took an internship at a law firm in New York. He announced to some of his fellow workers that he was going to become president. That was his, his goal. And he mapped out his strategy, the steps he was going to take to become president. And he said, well, the first thing I'm going to do is to enter New York state politics. I think I'll get elected to the New York legislature. And then after that, I will campaign for the national ticket, and I will take appointment to a federal position. And the federal position I have my eye on is Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And then after a stint in Washington, I will come back to New York and I will be elected governor of New York. And then I will be prime presidential timber. Well, in fact, that was exactly the trajectory that Theodore Roosevelt had followed. There's a story that goes, and I haven't been able to, to confirm this. There's a story that goes um, that uh, says that Franklin Roosevelt, in accord with following well, he was cousin Ted, now he's Uncle Ted. Um, that he followed, he decided he was going to follow Uncle Ted in another critical measure. And he told his wife Eleanor, and we're going to have six children. Just like Uncle Ted had six children. And she says, What do you mean, we? Who do you think is going to have these children? <laughs> now, as a matter of fact, they did have six children. Nah, but anyway, that's another story. And it's. Uh, Actually, an absolutely critical part of the story, which I'm going to get to in a moment. But anyway, Franklin Roosevelt was that rare potential candidate for president who could imagine well in advance that he would be president and could not simply imagine it, but have a kind of reasonable and um, and recognizable path to the presidency. And he, in fact, followed that precise path. He was elected to the New York State Legislature. He campaigned for the Democratic ticket. Now, here's an important distinction. Whereas Theodore Roosevelt was a Republican, Franklin Roosevelt was a Democrat. But they were less different in that regard than you might guess, because Theodore Roosevelt was always a maverick among the Republicans. He should have been a Democrat in terms of his political philosophy. But there was a reason, an accident of history, that caused him to be a Republican rather than a Democrat. He grew up in New York City in during and shortly after the Civil War. And for Theodore Roosevelt's generation, the Democratic Party was always the party of the rebellion. And furthermore, since he grew up in New York City, it was the party of Tammany Hall, which was corrupt. It was a big enough step for Theodore Roosevelt to enter politics at all, but to have entered politics in the Democratic Party would have been too much. Franklin Roosevelt actually came from a Democratic family in upstate New York. And this was actually a bit of an anomaly, because most of upstate New York was Republican. But his family consisted of Democrats, so he went into the Democratic Party. He was elected to the New York State Legislature. He campaigned for the Democratic ticket in 1912. And when Woodrow Wilson was elected, Wilson needed people to fill positions. This is the way you get assistant secretaries of the Navy. And Wilson asked. Franklin Roosevelt, what job he might like. Uh, He could have dreamed about being a cabinet secretary, but he wasn't quite that helpful to the ticket, which in those days meant that he, well, not just those days, um, it meant that he hadn't given enough money to the campaign. Uh, He had done enough for the campaign to merit a number two position, so he asked for assistant secretary of the Navy. And people recognized that there was that connection, and all of a sudden began to see what Franklin Roosevelt's ambitions were. Now, when I said that Franklin Roosevelt eventually became the most powerful man in the history of the world, he had good training for that. American presidents are almost never chosen for their expertise, their experience, even their serious thought about foreign affairs. We as a people almost never elect presidents based on their foreign policy. Very often, we elect presidents whose foreign policy we know almost nothing about. And you can include the current president. The election of 2000 was not fought out over foreign policy because at that time, no one had any idea that 9-11 was just around the corner. We had spent 10 years since the end of the Cold War. And foreign policy seemed to have taken a holiday. This is the norm rather than the exception. Woodrow Wilson, who was elected in 1912, was elected having said almost not a word on foreign policy. In fact, when Woodrow Wilson was about to be inaugurated, he told a journalist friend who kindly, for us historians, wrote it down, Uh, Wilson said, It would be the irony of history if foreign policy figured large in my administration. Well, of course, it was the irony of history because foreign policy swallowed up his administration. Anyway, most presidents have next to no training in foreign policy and have given almost no thought to the subject. There are a few exceptions. John Quincy Adams became president after the 1824 election. He had probably the best training. John Quincy Adams, by the reckoning of most diplomatic historians, is the greatest secretary of state in American history. Uh, Unfortunately, he should have stuck with that, because he became a lousy president. Uh, Which kind of goes to show that the, the qualifications for being a secretary of state are not the same by any means as the qualifications for being president of the United States. Theodore Roosevelt for seven and a half, excuse me, Franklin Roosevelt for seven and a half years was Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Now, I don't know who the current Assistant Secretary of the Navy is today. I can't tell you offhand who the Secretary of the Navy is today, because the position has diminished tremendously in importance from what it was earlier. Before World War II, in fact, before 1947, the Navy Department and the War Department were separate. And the Navy Department was, far and away, more important, more often than the War Department was. The War Department reflected the fact that the United States had this long tradition of building an army to fight wars and then disbanding the army between wars. If you were Secretary of War during peacetime, you had very little to do. If you were Secretary of the Navy, however, navies can't be constructed overnight. Navies have lead time. The U.S. Navy was America's military arm for projecting power, the strategic weapons of the entire era, before long-range bombers, was the U.S. Navy. Anyway, Franklin Roosevelt spent seven and a half years during World War I, before and during World War I, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He had very close relations with those people who made decisions regarding American foreign policy. He was engaged in devising American strategy, building America's navy. He went overseas to examine America's military naval operations in Europe. And furthermore, he did all this with the expectation that one day he would be president of the United States. As far as I know, he did not take written notes. But he almost certainly took mental notes. This is how you should do it. This is what you should do. This is what you should avoid doing. Franklin Roosevelt was at Woodrow Wilson's right hand, maybe his left hand, when Woodrow Wilson was guiding American policy during the First World War. Franklin Roosevelt understood this is what you should do, for example. He watched as Woodrow Wilson delayed American entry into the war. There were some people who shortly after the outbreak of the war in Europe in the summer of 1914 said the United States needs to get involved. Among those people who started saying that the United States needs to get involved very early on was none other than Theodore Roosevelt. As a brief digression, here was something that I've alluded to earlier. Theodore Roosevelt, after the election of 1912, Roosevelt ran for president in 1912 and he lost to Woodrow Wilson. And for two years after that, Theodore Roosevelt was a pretty good loser. He didn't like Having lost, but he knew that it was kind of a lost cause from the beginning. Running as a third-party candidate, so the fact that he lost didn't bother him particularly, and he wished Woodrow Wilson well until the war in Europe began, and then all of a sudden, Theodore, you could just almost, you could see it in his letters. Woodrow Wilson, all of a sudden, excuse me, Theodore Roosevelt, all of a sudden, became exceedingly envious of Woodrow Wilson. Why? Because all of a sudden Woodrow Wilson was facing that challenge that allowed Woodrow Wilson to become one of those great presidents. The challenge that Theodore Roosevelt himself would have had if he had won in 1912. The outbreak of the war in Europe in 1914 converted Theodore Roosevelt from a good loser in the election in 1912 to the worst loser you could imagine. And he spent the rest of his life embittered against Woodrow Wilson for having defeated him. Franklin Roosevelt watches Wilson, watches Wilson delay and delay, putting off pushing the United States toward entry into the war. First of all, until he got re-elected. This was a canny move for a politician. But more important, pushing Germany into a corner until Germany attacked the United States. The United States started out neutral in 1914. By the beginning of 1917, it was still technically a neutral, but it was giving all sorts of aid to Britain and France. The Germans realized it and they struck out at the United States and began sinking American ships and killing American citizens. And Woodrow Wilson realized that's what was necessary to unite the country behind the war effort. Woodrow Wilson recognized it is, and this was the term he used, it is a terrible thing. And he meant it both in the sense of really awful but also awe-inspiring. It, was a te- it is a terrible thing to lead this great country into war. You don't do it lightly. You don't do it until popular opinion has surged behind the war. Only then do you have a chance to hold the country together once you start asking the country to make the sacrifices that a real war requires. Franklin Roosevelt was there taking these mental notes. Now, as I say, he wasn't taking any personal, uh, physical notes, as far as I can tell. And this is one of the reasons that it's really hard to get at Franklin Roosevelt, because he was not reflective. He didn't reflect on things and write his reflections down. As far as I can tell, he didn't reflect on things and share his reflections with other people. So. In my search for Franklin Roosevelt, I have to figure out what makes this guy tick, when he's not giving me much to work with. Theodore Roosevelt would write letters saying, I feel this way, I hate this person, I love that person, You know, this is making me mad, this is making me happy, all sorts of things. It's relatively easy to infer a state of mind from that. But Franklin Roosevelt's letters are just as bland as can be. Um, t- when he criticizes people, He does it uh, sort of half tongue in cheek. You just can't see the guy getting mad in his letters. You can't see him getting enthusiastic in his letters. He seems to operate at this very kind of even keel. You almost wonder, is this guy taking life seriously? And in fact, one of the raps on Franklin Roosevelt was that he didn't take life particularly seriously. Because life was simply too easy. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about the two great crises of Franklin Roosevelt's life. And these are not the crises of public policy, of public affairs, these aren't the Great Depression, World War II. These are the crises of his personal life. And this gets at the heart of what biographers do, and the heart of my task. How do I connect the personal life to the public accomplishments. I'm a historian. When I write biographies, they are as much a story of the times as they are of the life. I look on the individual as an individual, but I also choose my individuals because they allow me to tell something about the times in which the individuals live. The two great crises of Frank and Roosevelt's personal life occurred within three years of each other. One in 1918, one in 1921. And this is where I can tell you what happened. And I can tell you what I think it meant. But I don't claim any particularly greater insight on what this meant than you could claim. Because my interpretation is simply going to be based on my understanding of people. And your understanding of people is as great as mine. So I'll let you figure out what you make of these, and maybe this can form the basis of questions and we can discuss it further. The first crisis occurred, and this first crisis was, I'm about to say, entirely of Franklin Roosevelt's own doing. But there again, there is some room for doubt. And to put it very bluntly, Franklin Roosevelt had an extramarital affair. He had been married to Eleanor for a dozen years. They had had they had five children. Uh, there was another child who died. They had five children. The war came. And like very many other people during the war, here's something that you perhaps don't appreciate, um, or maybe, maybe don't even know. That except during wartime, the American federal government, until almost World War II was quite a seasonal affair. Congress would meet, in, originally in March, later they changed it to January, and the legislators would go home around June, and they wouldn't come back often until the following January. And when Congress wasn't around, there wasn't much for the president to do either. Before the United States developed kind of permanent foreign policy, presidents often went home for months at a time. Andrew Jackson, during the 1820s and 1830s, would spend four months away from Washington. Partly it was because there wasn't much to do. Partly because Washington is a rather uncomfortable place to live in the summertime and nobody had air conditioning. So they'd try to go somewhere else. Anyway, during the war, however, the people who worked for the Greek federal government had to stay in Washington. One of the reasons people left Washington and other hot cities, and cities generally, during the summer, was that they were very unhealthy places to live. And infectious disease ran rampant in many American cities during the summertime. So, if you were married and you had children, and you had to stay in Washington, for example, you would send the wife and the kids off to somewhere else, some place like Campobello, an island off the northeast coast of Maine, in Canada, but very close to Maine, which was where the Roosevelt family had summered since the 1880s. So, Eleanor took the children, and off they went to Campabella, leaving Franklin alone in Washington with the rest of the workforce. And there was this practice, this sort of uh, phenomenon of what were sometimes called uh, sort of half-seriously, but only half-seriously, summer wives. And these were often the secretaries. These were the working girls, the working women, who had to stay with their jobs. And so, for those people who entertained during the summer, it wasn't surprising for somebody like, well, a summer bachelor like Franklin Roosevelt to be accompanied to some event with a young woman like Lucy Mercer, who, in fact, was Eleanor Roosevelt's personal secretary. And so, Franklin and Eleanor were, excuse me, Franklin and Lucy were seen around Washington on a regular basis. And at first, nobody really thought much of it. Oh, okay. Here's something else I have to tell you, and again, um, you'll help me decide what to make of it. Franklin Roosevelt. I've got pictures of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he was one of the most photographed presidents. In fact, I was just on the Franklin Roosevelt Library's website, and there are I don't know. There must be a thousand pictures of Franklin Roosevelt that are available digitally. Then a whole bunch more they haven't put on the internet. And I was just going through there, and because his family was wealthy, they could hire photographers, and there are all sorts of pictures of Frank and Roosevelt everywhere. He was a good looking young guy. And by the description of various people who knew him then, he was well, I mean, I don't know what to make of this, but I was talking to, now I was talking to a woman, now I can't remember exactly how old she was, but she was old enough that she seemed convincing on this score. She, she couldn't claim to have known Franklin Roosevelt when he was young, but she was old enough to have known him when he was relatively young. And she said, ah, oh, that young Franklin Roosevelt, he was a god. That's what she said. OK, well, apparently Franklin Roosevelt was attractive. He was certainly charming. And there are stories about when he would walk from the house that he rented, he and the family rented, uh, in northwest Washington, near DuPont Circle, down to the Navy Department, down on Connecticut Avenue. All the young women going to work would just turn their heads and say, who is that guy? So anyway, Franklin Roosevelt had this affair with Lucy Mercer. Now, I have to decide whether it is the biographer's job to, shall I say, sit in judgment on Franklin Roosevelt. I don't know if it is. I haven't decided whether I'm going to do this or not. Um, I I do have to try to explain how this came about. And I will tell you that the story gets more complicated the farther into it you get. Because there are versions of the story told within the family that Eleanor announced, after having six children, that six children was quite enough. And she was going to enforce this six child is enough six children is enough policy by suspending marital relations with Franklin Roosevelt. Now, if that's true, and I I can't tell if this is the side of the Roosevelt family that is apologizing for Franklin, I don't know. But if it's true, then it does, I guess, put this at least in a slightly different light than if here's this guy who's cavalierly playing the field. I don't know. I, I don't know where the truth lies. I don't know how to evaluate this. I will tell you that by the spring of 1918 it was fairly common knowledge that this was going on. Eleanor got wind of this partly through her cousin Alice Roosevelt. Alice Roosevelt Alice Roosevelt can only be described as a piece of work. Alice Roosevelt had a very unhappy childhood for reasons that I won't go into. But Eleanor Roosevelt was one, I mean Alice Roosevelt was one of those people who believed that unhappiness was something to be shared. (laughs) And so every chance she got, she relayed rumors, she repeated gossip, she told Eleanor that I saw Franklin with Lucy. And there's so much more I could tell you. Just begging for Eleanor to say, what more could you tell me? But Eleanor knew Alice and refused to give Alice that satisfaction. Alice was famous for saying she lived forever in Washington. She lived until the 1970s, long after everybody in the family was dead. And she used to say, if you have nothing nice to say about someone, here, come sit by me. (laughs) Alice Roosevelt came up with some acute insights into some of the people she knew of her father. Her father, Theodore Roosevelt, was someone who had an enormous ego. And Alice once said, and she knew this from painful personal experience, because Theodore Roosevelt had stolen the show at Alice's own wedding. And she said, if you want to understand my father, you need to remember that he wants to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) Anyway. Eleanor had reason to believe that Franklin was at least flirting with Lucy maybe more than this. And, I, and I'll tell you that at this distance, I can't say for sure if the relationship went beyond flirtation, if it went beyond simply some emotional connection. I will tell you this, though, that during the summer of 1918, during the summer late summer of 1918, Franklin Roosevelt went to France as assistant navy secretary the war was winding down he was going to have to he, he wanted to get to the front uh, if not to fight at least to be there so he could observe what war was really like while he was gone Lucy wrote him letters and apparently they were revealing personal letters exactly what they revealed I don't know they've been lost they were destroyed but they revealed enough So that, well, on the way home, Franklin Roosevelt became ill. And on the ship coming back from France, he was on his deathbed. This was at the moment of the 1918 influenza pandemic, where 10 million people, actually I guess many more than that total, around the world died. Now Franklin Roosevelt appears not to have contracted influenza, at least not an acute version. But when he was sick on the ship, He was delirious. He couldn't tell where he was, couldn't tell where he was going. When the ship docked in New York, normally, he would have picked himself up, grabbed his bags, got on a cab, and eventually made his way to the townhouse in New York. But he was so sick that he had to be carried off. Navy attachés, Navy midshipmen, had to come and get him and carry him off the ship. Eleanor was there. She had received word that her husband was seriously ill. So she was the one who grabbed his bags. They got back home. She unpacked the bags. And this is where an odd trait of the Roosevelt family turned out to work in Franklin Roosevelt's severe disfavor. The Roosevelt's were keepers. They never threw anything away. If Franklin Roosevelt had had any sense, or maybe, see here again, I don't know, maybe these letters were not particularly, shall I say, uh, incriminating. Or maybe he didn't think they were. He didn't throw them away. He didn't leave them in France. There they were in his bag. Eleanor read the letters. And Eleanor realized the nature of his relationship with Lucy. Again, I can't tell you exactly what the relationship was. But it was serious enough that Eleanor, well, she threatened to leave Franklin. Except that's not exactly the way she put it. Eleanor had a strong strain of the martyr complex in her. And so the way she put it, she offered Franklin his freedom. She would grant him a divorce. In those days, getting a divorce was not at all easy, especially if anybody contested the divorce. So if Eleanor had fought the divorce, there wouldn't have been a divorce. But she said, as she put it, she offered Franklin his freedom. And here's where, here's where the plot thickens. And you have to figure out whom to believe. And I don't know exactly whom to believe. But part one version says that Franklin immediately says, no, 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 I will stay with you, if only for the sake of the children. Well, he certainly did have the children's interests in mind. But another version of the story says he thought it over. He thought, well, maybe I will. And he only decided not to leave Eleanor or to accept Eleanor's offer when his mother, Sarah, threatened to cut off the money. Franklin Roosevelt's father had been very wealthy. When he died, he bequeathed most of the estate to Sarah, his wife, his widow. And Sarah doled out the money uh, in very modest fashion to Franklin. She was generous, but she was not willing to give Franklin any financial independence. She liked the idea that Franklin had to come to her for anything that he wanted. Now, another person might well have said, "Okay," in response to this, I'll go make a living of my own. I don't have to be dependent on my mother. But Franklin Roosevelt didn't make that decision. The result was that he remained dependent on his mother even, believe it or not, after he became president of the United States. He was still on an allowance. (laughs) And in those days, presidents didn't make enough money. Becoming president of the United States was a losing proposition. People left the White House poorer than they went in. Now, as a matter of fact, actually, that happens to presidents today too, uh, but they expect to make it up by selling their memoirs for ten million dollars or whatever they're going to do, or giving speeches for two hundred thousand dollars a pop. You know, it's kind of the standard practice. In those days, there wasn't a market for that sort of thing. So anyway, so Franklin Roosevelt decides to stay with Eleanor. Part of the deal, though, well, there are two stipulations. One is. You must promise never to see Lucy again. That's a perfectly reasonable demand. And Franklin Roosevelt said, right, okay, I'll do it. Now, as a matter of fact, he didn't quite follow through on that, Um, and oh gosh, no, we're not going to get there, sorry. Uh, You'll have to read the book. Uh, The other stipulation was, the other stipulation was uh, That well, and this is basically no more sex. Okay, well, now you gotta. Any of you have to figure out what to make of this. You know, okay, so you tell Franklin Roosevelt at the time was thirty-six years old. So you tell this thirty-six-year-old guy, in good health, uh, there's not going to be any more sex. You know, at least. Not at home. So I don't know what Eleanor expected to happen after this. Uh, I don't know know, how she expected Franklin to react. Was he supposed to take this as an enforced vow of celibacy? Was he supposed to take this as um, implicit permission to Have affairs, but just keep the damn things discreet? I don't know. This is complicated fairly shortly by the second great crisis of Franklin Roosevelt's personal life. And that was his contraction of polio in the summer of 1921. For Franklin Roosevelt to come down with polio at the age of 39, first of all, was so Unusual for anybody to come down with polio at the age of 39. Polio was a childhood disease. Adults almost never came down with polio. And because it was so rare, the doctors missed the diagnosis for the first two weeks. They thought it must be something else. In fact, it's so rare that medical historians, since, some of them anyway, have concluded that the diagnosis, the eventual diagnosis of polio, was wrong. That it just. Adults didn't get polio. And so they have proposed various other explanations for this. The general feeling is that yes, indeed, it was polio. And maybe the reason he contracted it was precisely his sheltered childhood. The polio virus was, and frankly still is, very common uh, around the world. And it was certainly common in the United States, but nearly everybody. Encountered it as a child. And they encountered it as a child when their immune system could deal with it, and most people who encountered the polio virus showed no symptoms whatsoever. Some people came down with the equivalent of a mild case of flu, shook it off, and that was that, never knew that they had polio. In fact, Franklin Roosevelt is the only example of what you could call a celebrity case of polio in American history. There's no other high-profile person who contracted polio as an adult. Anyway, now what this meant to Roosevelt is hard to say, but I've got to figure it out, however hard it might be to say. I need to point out that Franklin Roosevelt was not only healthy and good-looking, he was exceedingly athletic, and he prided himself on his physical strength, His ability to, oh, on the the decks of bounding destroyers, he would run up and down, and he would, whenever he was in politics, he would jump out of the cars and press the flesh. He was everywhere. He played golf all the time. He was a horseback rider. He did everything an active young guy would do, and all of a sudden, he can't do any of that at all. He would never walk again. He could never stand unaided. He eventually was able to stand with these very heavy braces, that locked his knees in place. He developed the semblance of a walk. But of course, he had no feeling below his hips. And the only thing that he could do is with crutches or with the help of a person on either side, he could kind of swing his hips in a way so that his dead legs would allow him to make progress. He lived at a time when the media, meaning for the most part, newspapers and radio. And it's significant that radio is sound. Radio isn't pictures. The media essentially conspired to conceal the extent of Roosevelt's disability from the American people. It wasn't a secret. In fact, you can go back. I've gone back. You can read the major newspapers. In 1921, 1922, 1923, 1924. 1924 is when he makes his political comeback. He spends 21 through 24 rehabilitating in Warm Springs, Georgia, for the most part. He makes a comeback at the Democratic National Convention in 24. And there are quite detailed descriptions of how Roosevelt, this polio sufferer, with great effort made his way to the lectern. And nobody's hiding the fact that he has had polio. Nobody's hiding the fact that he cannot walk unaided. Roosevelt, his public relations people, his doctor did conspire to hide the extent of his disability. He tended to minimize it. He did stand up, and people thought, oh, he can stand. And the Roosevelt people would let on that he hopes to be walking unaided a year from now, that sort of thing. But they all knew that he had had this very serious physical illness. And in fact, the the fact that he had had this illness, led to this huge ovation for him at the National Convention that year, because of his courage in simply being there. So it was no secret. But the newspapers from 1924 were thrown away, the way newspapers are. And when he was president, no one was allowed to take pictures of Roosevelt in his wheelchair. He was in a wheelchair. Of the many thousands of photographs of Roosevelt that survived, there are only two that show him in a wheelchair. I've only seen one of them. I haven't seen what the, I haven't found the other one yet. i have told on good authority that there are two. I've seen one of them. And occasionally, if somebody didn't know the rules and took a picture of Roosevelt in his wheelchair, the Secret Service agents, and they were able to do this in those days, just come up and grab the camera. And they'd tear out the negative or the glass plate and they'd destroy it. You can't publish that. And so he was able to get away with it. But It's a remarkable thing. Well, one of the things I have to figure out is, what effect did this have on Roosevelt emotionally? What did it mean? I don't know. And this is an aspect of my life that, fortunately, I haven't encountered. And fortunately, not that many people do encounter. So what does it mean for someone who is, all of a sudden, in the prime of life, unable to walk? Roosevelt absolutely loved to play golf. From the time he was a kid, every spare moment was spent on the golf links. In New York, around Washington, Campbell, any place he could find to go play golf. After he contracted polio, he never even spoke of golf again. It was too painful to think of the fact that he would never be able to swing a golf club again. So I have to figure out what to make of this, what to do with this, what effect did it have on his perceptions of the world? What effect did it have on the world's perceptions of him? Now, one of the things that I've tentatively concluded is that it probably had a greater effect on the world's perceptions of Roosevelt than on Roosevelt's perceptions of the world. The criticism of Roosevelt until the early 1920s was everything had been handed to Franklin Roosevelt. And most people who potentially might have voted for Roosevelt, let's say for president, most people had a hard time identifying with this guy. He was the rich kid, he was the blonde haired, good looking, Harvard educated kid who had had his path paved with roses. And then, and then he came down with polio. And all of a sudden, the world knew that Franklin Roosevelt had suffered. Everybody suffers. We suffer in different ways. One of the reasons we vote for president, we don't vote for president because we think they have the best policy on this or that. We don't vote for president because they have the best resume. We vote for president because, and when I say we, most voters, I think, and at least perhaps could differ with me on this, but I think Most people vote for president because of something in that president, that candidate, it makes them feel a certain way. They feel reassured. They feel as though this person understands them. They feel as though this person somehow represents what they want to be. Just take, I'll just pick one election out of the blue. The election of 1980, Jimmy Carter ran against Ronald Reagan. By no stretch of anybody's imagination, Democratic or Republican, did Ronald Reagan know an, as much, anywhere near as much, about policies, about governance, about the what you really need to know if you want to manage the country? But Ronald Reagan won. Why did Ronald Reagan win? Because he made Americans feel good about themselves after Vietnam, after the economic reverses of the 1970s. And that's a perfectly legitimate reason for voting for somebody for president. And When Franklin Roosevelt ran for president in 1932, he had less experience, certainly, than Herbert Hoover. Now, of course, the the ongoing depression was a really big deal, and Herbert Hoover probably couldn't have beaten the local dog catcher. However, people responded to Franklin Roosevelt at an emotional level. They responded because, and one of the things I'm going to have to sort out is, how effective was the New Deal? The New Deal did not end the Depression. And one of my big uh, interpretations of Roosevelt is going to be that Roosevelt, if America was the victor at the end of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt was the individual, the political victor. World War II saved Roosevelt's presidency, saved Roosevelt's reputation. If not for the war, Roosevelt would have left office after the 1940 election. He probably, almost certainly, would have been succeeded by a Republican. Much of the New Deal that hadn't already stalled would have been repealed. He would have been recognized as a two-term president. That's something there aren't. Not all presidents are two-term presidents, so that's in his favor. But otherwise, a dismal failure. Because the main thing that he was elected to do, and re-elected to do, was to cure the Depression. And he did not. The Depression was as bad in 1938 as it had been, almost as bad as it had been in 1933. But what saved Roosevelt, what brought the country out of the Depression, was the war in Europe. What allowed Roosevelt to run for a third term was the war in Europe. What lifted Roosevelt from the ranks of, I don't know, the equivalent of whom? Uh, Maybe better than Ulysses Grant. But, uh, you know, James Madison, maybe. Madison was a great constitutional framer and founding father, pretty lousy president. Okay? Two terms with lousy. Franklin Roosevelt would have been in that category, maybe worse, because he would have been president during the longest depression in American history. And in fact, there are economic historians, or probably the economists then, who said that the New Deal simply aggravated the depression, extended the depression. And Roosevelt historically would have had to deal with that. He didn't have to. The war came along, saved it, saved the New Deal, saved his reputation, and allowed Roosevelt to enter the ranks of the pantheon of the American presidency. Now, I've gone on much longer than I should have, and I haven't even gotten half of what I intended to tell you. I apologize for that. Do we have time for questions? Yep, we'll take time. OK, will be happy to try to answer your questions. I hope I didn't wear you out sufficiently. Ah, there we go. Yes, sir. Yes. a call once said that you had to feel history in order to understand it. Is there an event in life that made you feel about history to where you wanted to spend a lifetime studying it? I can't point to a particular event. I can point to a period in my life that made me decide that history was interesting, and it had nothing to do with school. In fact, it was beyond school. After I uh finished college I graduated from college with a bachelor's degree in 1975 I didn't know what I wanted to do and um, my family I mentioned my father earlier one of the reasons he was a staunch republican was that he was a self-employed businessman he there's a family business and I was raised to go into the family business I have the same name as my father who has the same name had the same name as his father had the same name as his father before him we were Henry William Brands' is right down the line. I have reason to believe that I'm actually Henry VIII. But <laughs> anyway, for want of something better to do, I decided to try my hand at the family business. The family business at the time, it's evolved. The family business at the time was the import and wholesale of cutlery. Knives and scissors, primarily, with a little bit of hardware thrown in on the side. And everybody who entered the business, especially members of the family, started at the bottom. Actually, I started in the, the warehouse when I was about 10 years old. And I spent every summer working for the company. And then when I got out of college, I was advanced to becoming a salesman on the worst route that the company had. This was the way my father was going to break me in. So I said, fine, I'll do it. My route covered the territory from Portland. The, the company's based in Portland. I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Somebody's based in Portland. I got territory that stretched. It was a thin territory. It stretched from Portland to Denver. Ran across the Great Basin. There were hundreds of miles between accounts. And so I spent about, uh, well, most of a year traversing the territory from Oregon to Colorado. This is in the mid-1970s. Cable television had not yet been invented. (laughs) Television signals. The broadcast signals did not yet reach cities like Winnemucca, Nevada. (laughs) The stores closed at 5 o'clock. Hardware stores don't keep late hours. And if you don't like gambling in Winnemucca, there's not much to do. So what I did was to load up my car with my cutlery samples. My cutlery samples were these two rolls. They looked like sleeping bags with handles. But they each weighed about 85 pounds because they were full of knives. <laughs> I visited this one pawn shop. This is part of the client base that I was serving, this one pawn shop in Salt Lake City. And nobody from the company had gone in there for, well, 40 years, because the last person who visited was my grandfather, and he quit going because they didn't buy anything. So I walked in the door. I hadn't taken a step inside the door. I said, "I know who you are." I recognize those sample rolls. Your grandfather bought those in here. Back in, I guess it was 38 or so. Where's he been? (laughs) I said he died. Okay. Anyway, so there wasn't anything to do after hours in these out of the way places. So in, in addition to loading up the car with cutlery samples, I loaded up the car with books, history books. My other grandfather was a sucker for traveling book salesmen. There used to be traveling book salesmen. And they would come to the door, and they, well, for actually, until fairly recently, you could uh, encounter traveling salesmen who would sell encyclopedias. And people put themselves through college summers selling encyclopedias. But they also sold, in the earlier days, they sold all sorts of books, including such things as the complete works of Sir Walter Scott. No one should have the complete works of Sir Walter Scott. No one should read the complete works of Sir Walter Scott. I didn't read all of them. I read some of them. But I mostly read history. And I became fascinated with history. And the kind of history that I read was not history books by authors like myself. It was the raw stuff of history. There is this historian who these days, if he were still alive, uh, would be accused of massive plagiarism, of outright fraud. His name was Hubert Howe Bancroft. It is for Hubert Howe Bancroft, I don't know if this means anything to any of you. but. The Bancroft Library at the University of California at Berkeley is named for Hubert Howe Bancroft. He was the great historian of the West. And he didn't write any of the books that were published under his name. He hired research assistants to compile the books. And that's all they were. They weren't even authored; They were compiled. And these were essentially where somebody took a bunch of diaries, letters, just old stuff, and dumped them between covers. And I found this absolutely fascinating. And I read up on the arcana of the history of the Pacific Northwest, and then the history of the West Coast generally, and the settlement of the West, and all this stuff. And I was reading about the territory that I was driving across, and I was reading it through the accounts of people who had been there 200 years earlier, who were leading wagon trains, who were leading fur trading expeditions. And I found this utterly fascinating. And it was this that convinced me, first of all, that history was really interesting. Uh, turned out, I actually didn't like uh, selling cutlery. Uh, I later discovered, at least I sort of convinced myself, that I'm a reasonably good salesman, and after all, you're still sitting here after an hour and a half, and with any kind of luck, you're going to buy my books out there. I, Did I tell you that there are books on sale afterwards, and the author will be happy to sign them? Anyway, um, so I decided that I wanted to, um, I started thinking about writing history. But I was too—I uh, didn't have enough nerve to just jump in and write history. So I decided to start off by teaching, and it was turned out to be a relatively easy uh, career transition because I started off teaching in high school. In fact, in a private high school where I didn't have to get a teaching credential. And so I taught there for a while and decided I liked it. But I thought, well, I think I want to write as well. So I moved from teaching high school to teaching college, where part of the job description is writing. And so it's great—I get to teach and I get to write. And I get to tell stories yeah. to audiences like you. <laughs> Maybe one more question, because I, you've been very patient. Yes, ma'am. How about, Eleanor? She had a lot of influence about the poor, and the, um, because she was so concerned with that in her later. Eleanor Roosevelt is a major part of my story. I initially pitched my book to my publisher when I wrote a book on Andrew Jackson. And then for the next project, I said, Here's what I want to do. I want to write a joint biographer uh, a biography of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt because they were the the form, they remain the foremost political couple in American history. Now perhaps the Clintons will become that if Hillary should get the nomination for example then then everybody will have to acknowledge the Clintons become the number one political power couple in American history. But until now it's Franklin and Eleanor And I wanted to do this partly because Eleanor was interesting in her own right, partly because you cannot understand Franklin without trying to figure out Eleanor. Now, partly for the personal reasons that I've described, but also because they were this political tag team during the 1930s. Eleanor was consistently to the left of Franklin. She was more liberal than Franklin. She was more sensitive to the needs and the concerns of the poor, of racial minorities. And she was able to reach out to groups like that in a way that Franklin either couldn't or wouldn't. And with Franklin, it's hard to tell. Now, part of the reason that Franklin couldn't was that when Franklin Roosevelt became president in 1932, it was the first time a Democrat had been elected since Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson's election was a historical accident. It was because the Republicans split. From 1860 until 1932, this was the Republican era in national politics, and especially in presidential politics. Roosevelt finally became president in 1932. A Democrat became president in 1932 by putting together a very unstable coalition, a coalition consisting of urban political machines from the big cities, uh, including various ethnic groups in the big cities, and Southern Democrats. Very conservative Southern Democrats. Downright racist Southern Democrats. And Roosevelt knew that he couldn't get anywhere, on any subject, without cultivating those Southerners, particularly Southern senators, who had been in the Senate forever, and as a result of the seniority rules in the Senate, chaired all the important committees in the Senate. And if Roosevelt tried to do anything, for example, toward dismantling the segregationist Jim Crow system, he would immediately alienate all of the people he needed on those those southern-headed committees, and nothing would get through Congress. So Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt would send Eleanor out. He would send Eleanor out to talk to the NAACP. He would send Eleanor out to talk to various poor groups, minority groups in the South and around the country. And let Eleanor say, and partly because Eleanor would say it of her own volition, but also because it worked well for Franklin, that the president would like to do what you want him to do. The president would like to support what you're advocating But there are all those reactionaries in the Senate that he has to deal with. And he simply can't. Now, I have to try to figure out to what extent Eleanor is a free agent in this, to what extent she is Franklin's lieutenant. Partly this rests on my perception of the politics of the two. I actually think I have a pretty good handle on Eleanor's politics, on Franklin's politics. Uh, Eleanor's a little bit easier on her politics because actually she's more reflective in this regard. She wrote two volumes of memoirs and tons of newspaper columns. Franklin wrote none of, nothing like that. But the personal aspect is a little bit hard to fathom because after this, the big furor within the family over the Lucy Mercer affair, they, they reconcile to a certain extent As far as I can tell, and as far as anybody in the family can tell, they were never intimate again. But they did share children. It's almost like a couple that has been divorced, but still has to deal with the fact that they have this family together. But it's more than that, because after the kids grow up and move out, of course, Eleanor's still around. They still share a house. They don't share a bedroom. Eleanor spends a lot of time gone to the extent that uh, one of the Washington papers wrote a joke headline in about 1935 or 1936, Eleanor Roosevelt spends night at the White House (laughs) because she's always somewhere else. So I have to try to figure out what Eleanor saw in this relationship, what she was going to get out of this. Uh, Likewise for Franklin. And I mentioned that uh, Franklin did not entirely follow through on his promise never to see Lucy again. After 1918, after the affair was discovered, he stopped seeing Lucy. Lucy married another man who was uh, rather older than Lucy. They were married for 21-22 years. He died in the early 1940s. Lucy at that point, of course, was a widow. Uh, Franklin was in his was about 60. His health was declining. One of, the, one of the big parts of my story, and actually one of the scandals of American politics, was the extent of Franklin Roosevelt's physical deterioration during his last couple of years. He never should have run for president in 1944. He was dying in 1944. I don't think he knew he was dying. but His doctor knew he was dying. And his doctor may have told Franklin, but in that early era, uh, often the patient was the last to know it was considered more humane or for some reason patients weren't told what the prognosis was or the prognosis was bad but he was his health was clearly declining eleanor was spending more and more time away eleanor had a life of her own and franklin wanted needed companionship He talked to his daughter, Anna. And somehow, through Anna, I don't know who initiated this, but through Anna, he made a reconnection to Lucy. And Anna arranged for Lucy to visit the White House when Eleanor was away, which was most of the time, so it was relatively easy. The Secret Service knew about this, because they checked people in and out of the White House. But they declined to put Lucy's name in the White House log of visitors. So they conspired in this as well. After all, if the president says he wants this to happen, this is what you do. And they work for the president. Uh, But Anna, the daughter, she, this is one of the things I'll have to figure out is where do the kids fit in all of this? And do the kids have divided loyalties? Uh, Anna certainly knew that it would hurt Eleanor. It would wound Eleanor very much emotionally if Anna was the one who facilitated these secret meetings between Lucy and Franklin. And one of the reasons I know she knew this is she kept them secret from Eleanor. And it becomes really poignant at the end. Franklin Roosevelt has gone to Yalta in the early part of 1945. The trip exhausted him. He immediately went to Warm Springs, Georgia, where he always went to recoup, to regather his strength. And he was there for a couple of weeks, and he got word to Lucy that he was there. And Lucy took a train down from Washington to visit him. Perhaps Lucy realized she could see pictures. She had known Franklin since he was a hale and hearty young man. She could see the pictures that ran in the newspapers. And here was a guy who was clearly not well. Perhaps Anna let him know. I uh, let her know. Perhaps uh, the doctor somehow tipped the doctor's hand to Lucy that Franklin might not have much longer to live. So she went down to Warm Springs, Georgia. And she was there. Franklin Roosevelt was having his portrait painted. He was just sitting there resting. He was having his portrait painted. And Lucy was there, and they were chatting when Franklin Roosevelt suffered the stroke that killed him a couple of hours later. And Eleanor was a 1,000 miles away. I don't know exactly where she was, but she wasn't wasn't there. Anna, who was also there, realized that the word could not get out, that Lucy was there when Franklin died. And so she very quickly smuggled Lucy out, put her on the next train. The Secret Service went along with this, got Lucy out of there, and covered up any record that Lucy had been there. And initially, Anna was able to keep this secret from Eleanor. When Eleanor finally learned. Then Anna had to tell the whole story about how she had had Lucy in the White House and, and the whole business, and as you can imagine, Eleanor was deeply wounded. I don't know what to make of this story. It's a sad story, that part of it at the end. It's uh, maybe it's not entirely sad. I mean, these are two people who are simply trying to find love and companionship, even if you are, even if he was the most powerful man in the history of the world, as I'm going to contend. He still needed love and affection. And he found it where he could. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know whether to render a judgment on that or simply tell the story as best I can. Anyway, thank you very much. You've been a wonderful audience and very patient.